Well, it's my privilege to join you. I was trying to do a little arithmetic. My father was born in 1911. And so rumor has it, I wasn't around to witness the event, but he moved to this country with his parents in uh, 1913 when he was at the ripe old age of two. So that means he was here before this church began. It took two years more before Calvary, before Calvary Baptist Church was, was planted. My grandmother, that is my father's mother, somewhere along the line, um, had a mild, quiet kind of Christian faith. But at what stage she started coming, whether she was here from the beginning or not, I don't honestly know. My brother's here. Do you know? No? No? I just don't know. But they were here from very early on. My grandfather never came. Um, he might have shown up at the odd Christmas meeting or something like that. He became a Christian only toward the very, very end of his life, um, the last uh, year or so. And, uh, but, but this was the church in which my father grew up. And uh, uh, many of his stories, when he was a young man, concerned old Mr. Blair. Does that turn on any lights for some of you who are older? Yeah, yes, some, some, some white hairs are saying yes. Um, those of you who are sort of under 35, maybe Mr. Blair belongs to the realm of mythology. Um, but old Mr. Blair had a decided influence on my dad, uh, a fount of wisdom and encouragement toward the ministry and, and so forth. So much of what my father did and became was stamped on his spiritual DNA in the early years of his uh, uh, spiritual pilgrimage in this church. So when I was honored with the invitation to come for the 100th anniversary, I could scarcely say no, since presumably some of his DNA has rubbed off on me. Um, so for all my sins, you are absolved. For whatever good has come, you are to be thanked. What, what can I say? Now, um, you might wonder why I would choose a topic like this one on a celebratory occasion. Yet... I hope you will see by the end that the picture I try to paint is a massive one that is necessary in every generation to stabilize the church. The truth of the matter is that if you live long enough, you will suffer. There are no exceptions. If you live long enough, you will bereave others by dying. And if you live long enough, you yourself will be bereaved first One understands what Job meant when he said, man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. If you live long enough, you'll contract cancer or Alzheimer's or heart failure or all three. And if that is delayed for you, then it will befall someone whom you know. I look around this congregation, and there are quite a few of you who are in the so-called sandwich years, where you're concerned for young adults in your family that have not quite managed to stand on their own feet, but also taking care of parents who now need a lot more time and attention. Some of you, I'm sure, have lost your jobs. Some of you have been through divorce. So that while we celebrate, we live in a broken world. 
And how to think about such things from a genuinely Christian perspective is very important in every generation. The public media sometimes give the impression that Christians are the only ones who really have a deficit of serious thought in this domain. If there is a God, then surely he wouldn't allow, then you fill in the blank. The Holocaust, typhoons, famine in the Sahel, or whatever. But in point of fact, the question of suffering has to be framed and raised and faced by every philosophy, by every worldview. It, it, it is simply inescapable. Supposing you are a philosophical naturalist. That is, you believe that all there is is matter and energy and space and time. There's nothing more than that. Then the logic of your situation must drive you to conclude that it, it doesn't matter if you suffer. It's just quarks bouncing off each other. They're, they're just... Adam's doing their thing. There is no moral or existential significance to it. The fact of the matter is we can't live like that. It's not what we feel when we're suffering, or when we're watching others suffer. I can't think of an outlook more sterile, more frankly bankrupt, than philosophical naturalism when it comes to the facing of suffering. So what I want to suggest to you in this address is that there are six huge pillars in Scripture that support a kind of platform of how to think about these things on which you build up a Christian way to think about suffering and evil. Now, normally what I do is expound a particular passage of Scripture, and in truth, that's what I will do in the other two sessions I have with you. So, I warn you, um, I will be expounding scripture this evening at the dinner and tomorrow morning. Uh, bring along your Bibles. But right now I'm going to be hopping here, there, and everywhere in scripture because I want to build these large pillars on which is to be suspended a kind of platform on which to erect serious thought about these matters from a Christian point of view. In other words, I'm not pretending to give you um, a one-size-fits-all answer, now I know all about suffering. I can answer anybody about suffering. I, that, that would be arrogant. Certainly there are mysteries in, in, in suffering. But, but nevertheless, there are frameworks to adopt, to understand, to accept uh, from Holy Scripture that we need tucked away in our minds and hearts uh, in order to be faithful when the evil day does come. So here we go, number one. <clears throat> insights from the beginning of the Bible's storyline. Insights from the beginning of the Bible's storyline. The Bible begins by insisting that when God made things, he made them good. Indeed, very good. And that what went wrong was rebellion. Sin, anarchy, the de-godding of God. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And that this anarchy attracted the curse of God on human existence, and indeed on the entire created order. 
Now, that's elemental Christianity. It's what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 insist upon. But it is important to recognize how that perspective is world-shaping. There are some world religions, for example, that insist that what is immaterial, what is spiritual, is intrinsically and essentially good. The real problem is that we're entombed in matter. What we must gain is, is freedom from matter, and then we will know no more suffering. That was very common in the second to the fourth centuries of the common Christian era, this side of Christ. And there are still other views that say Christianity is wrong because it seems to come from somewhere and is going somewhere, whereas in reality you just go round and round and round in circles and you hop on and hop off, as it were. That's largely the way Hinduism works. Hinduism doesn't have a telos. It doesn't have an end. You go round and round and round and come back in, in, in various forms in reincarnation. That's, that's a way of looking at reality. Uh, and, and if you're really quite naughty, you might come back as a chimpanzee. And if you're very naughty, maybe you'll come back as a, as a, a piranha or something. And, and if you're really good, then you might come back as a higher order. And really, really good, you might come back as a very rich human being and so on. But at the end of the day, you're going to drop off again and then have to get back on and cycle up again. So what I am trying to say is that every way of looking at reality must think through how you view good and evil, right and wrong. In the Christian way, in the biblical way, right is lined up with God's pleasure and will. Wrong is that which defies him. And at the beginning of all evil is anarchic attitudes toward God, which brings, in turn, righteous judgment. Now, I'm sure that you will recall that when the Twin Towers came down 13 years ago, there were a couple of American preachers whose names shall be omitted from this discourse who attracted international attention because they said, the reason God has brought judgment upon America is because of abortion and high divorce rates and homosexuality. If we returned to righteousness, then we would not face such judgments from God. And immediately, of course, there was international scandal and eventually they were forced to apologize in public. But, but, you know, biblically speaking, they were almost right, even while they were dead wrong. B because what they did was condemn everybody else's sin. They were long far removed from Isaiah, who says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. If instead of saying what they said, they had said, we deserve judgment in this country with our record of arrogance, our unbridled consumerism, the long lingering arm of racism, our endless hedonism, 
our lust for power, our sexual perversions. Did you see, if it had been part of a, a much bigger framework, then actually they would have been saying no more than what the prophets actually keep saying. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing that judgment does fall on the nations because of sin. And at the heart of that sin is idolatry. It's the de-godding of God. 600 times the Old Testament speaks of the wrath of God, quite apart from all the times in the New Testament. And the sin which is most regularly attached to the wrath of God is idolatry. And there we're all guilty. That's why the Apostle Paul can say that greed is idolatry, that covetousness is idolatry. Because what you want the most is God for you. And you can tell what you want the most by what you fantasize over, what you think about, what you pour time and energy and money into. God help us, we're all idolaters. Moreover, Jesus himself, in the days of his flesh, presupposes this outlook. Remember how Luke 13 runs, the first five verses? Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, there had been some Galileans at the temple who had been offering up sacrifices, and for whatever reason, Pilate came into the temple precincts and slaughtered them so that their blood was mixed with the blood of the animals that they were sacrificing. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. In other words, according to the Lord Jesus, what is surprising is not that some died at the hand of a wicked man called Pilate and that others died in the order of so-called natural events, but that the others who are left alive haven't died yet. What presupposes that we all deserve to die? The sentence has already been passed. In other words, from this first pillar, it's, it's only one pillar. You, you, you can't extrapolate the lessons from this pillar to the entire range of, of suffering. There is such a thing as innocent suffering. We'll come to that. But, but nevertheless, from this pillar, you learn that from the Bible's perspective, what is shocking is not that a lot of people die, but how many don't yet. But we're all under this judgment. That's the first pillar. Second pillar. Insights from the end of the Bible storyline. The Bible insists with increasing clarity as you run through its pages that ultimately there is a new heaven and a new earth to be gained and a hell to be feared. Which means you can't possibly assess things in their totality 
until you place yourself, as it were, 50 billion years into eternity. Do you remember the account of the rich man and Lazarus? It's only a story. It's a parable. But it's certainly an interesting parable. The rich man isn't even named. That's a way of saying he's not really very important in the way they told stories of the time. Lazarus' name means the one whom God helps. And when you first see him, sick, unable to work, unable even to walk, hungry, dying, you think, if this is the one whom God helps, I'd sure hate to meet the one whom God doesn't help. But the name is important because you're supposed to ask, by the end of the story, which one was it that God helped? Moreover, when you examine the accounts of Scripture closely, hell, as far as I can see, is not filled with people who are finally sorry for their sins and want to get out. It's filled with, with, with people who, who, who are still angry at God and, and self-justifying. So the rich man, in The Rich Man and Lazarus, when he sees Abraham and Lazarus a long way off, what does the rich man say? What, what would you expect him to say? Wouldn't you expect him to say, Oh, Lazarus, did I get that wrong? I am so sorry. Can you ever forgive me? But there's no awareness of his own sin. There's only awareness of his own suffering. He plays the race card. He, he plays the covenant card. Father Abraham, w would you mind sending that chap to, to, to bring me some water to cool my tongue because I'm in agony in these flames. He still thinks he's at the center of the universe and can order God around he, he, even when he's in hell. when Abraham remonstrances with him on several exchanges, the rich man actually gets to the place where he says, no, Father Abraham, you mustn't think that way. It's really this way. Even in hell, the rich man is contradicting the theology of Abraham. Hell is filled with people who are still of the opinion that they are at the center of the universe. And in an unending cycle of perpetually well-chosen, hateful idolatry, they still defy God and face judgment. On the other hand, the biblical pictures of the new heaven and the new earth are spectacularly wonderful and diverse. And we give them too little thought. I'm sure all of us have seen these silly little cartoons these line drawings where somebody is in a white nightgown sitting on a puffy cloud playing a harp and that's supposed to represent heaven? Now, I'm, I'm all for harps. Every decent orchestra needs at least one, not more than two. But after I've played a harp for a billion years or so, I might really want to move on to something else. Besides, White nightgowns don't suit me. I've, I've got too pale a complexion. I mean, if, if that's what heaven is like, I, 
Well, it's better than hell, but not by much. And, and, and so as a result, we, we don't feel any sort of homesickness for the glory yet to be revealed. But that means we need to remind ourselves of the diversity of ways that the Bible depicts the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Well, take the harp. What they meant by harp in those days was not that great big curly thing with a lot of strings on it and foot pedals and so on. The harp was for the ancient Jews a happy instrument, an instrument of joy. When in the Old Testament the people go off into captivity, they say, by the rivers of Babylon, there we hung up our hearts, our harps. Our tormentors say, sing us a song of Zion. How can I sing a song of Zion in a strange land? But in the book of Revelation, when you see the triumph of Christ, then, for example, in Revelation 5, the harps all come down, which is a way of singing. It's happy time. What, what for you is a happy instrument? Uh, that, that's, that's so culture-laden, you know? Banjo? It's pretty hard to be miserable when you're playing a banjo. Do you know? There are not a lot of banjos at funerals. You know? Even if you're not a country-western fan, a banjo gets your foot popping anyway, despite your best, your best efforts to resist it. A banjo is a happy instrument. There are going to be a lot of banjos in heaven. And then there's the parable of the talents. Well done, good and faithful slave. You've been faithful over a few things. You've turned buckets of gold into ten times, into twice the amount of the buckets of gold. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Now I'm going to give you a real job. You know what's going to take place in the new heavens and the new earth? Real jobs. Bigger jobs. Learning and expanding and growing. And intimacy with the living God. Intimacy that the Bible dares depict as the kind of antitype of the perfect sexual intimacy in a good marriage. We have the marriage supper of the Lamb. Joy. Hallelujah choirs with 10,000 times 10,000. So many different depictures of what glory will be like and no more death and no more tears and holiness. We're told that even the highest order of angels have to cover their faces with their wings because they cannot gaze on God. But of the redeemed, we're told, they will see God. Which is why across the eras of church history, the new heaven and the new earth has often been called by two Latin words, the visio dei, the vision of God. And what we must see is we cannot begin to adequately locate suffering here until we have something of this larger horizon. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He does not say, guard your heart. Other parts of the Bible say that. Proverbs says, guard your heart, for are the wellsprings of life. But that's not what Jesus says. What Jesus says is, choose your treasure. Because what you treasure is where your heart will go. 
What you value the most is where your heart will go, which means it is blisteringly important for the church of Jesus Christ to hold up all the time in front of the the minds and hearts of, of our people. It's blisteringly important to hold up all the time the glories, the perfections, the wonder, the holiness, the God-centeredness, the, the, the love, the intimacy, the friendship, the trust, the, the, the work, the energy, the creativity, the possibilities of the new heaven and the new earth. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. So as we look back on the last hundred years, take time to look forward on the next 50 billion. Or you've lost your sense of direction. Did you see? In the church where my wife and I are members in the town of Libertyville a few years ago, there was a woman whom we'll call Mary. Now, my wife, uh, about 15 years ago, contracted cancer. She had a double mastectomy, and everything that could go wrong did go wrong. She wasn't at all sure she was going to make it to 50. She's now 63. But about the same time, this woman, Mary, had cancer. And whereas my wife's was fairly high order, hers was uh, stage zero, which is about as safe as you can get. And they treated it, and they thought it was fine. And then about uh, six years ago, it came back. Seven years ago, it came back. And it was vicious. It was vicious, and it was fast. And they did all the things that doctors do. There are some excellent um, cancer centers in Metro Chicago, but she was going downhill. She was diagnosed in May. In September, our church held a special Saturday of prayer for her. And it wasn't just local people that came, because this woman (laughs) really was quite remarkable. Uh, She was one of the leaders amongst women in the denomination, And uh, in addition, she and her husband laid aside uh, a a large part of their basement space uh, in order to uh, stack up things that missionaries need when they come home. They they come home and they don't have toasters and they don't have blankets and whatever they have had overseas. The power has been different, so they've had to buy American things here. Don't give us junk. Missionaries don't need junk. We want good stuff. And they came home and they sorted things out. She started a business on the side and had a lot of volunteers doing part of the business so that the prophets could go back into missionary work. Everybody knew Mary. So on that Saturday, when people came to pray, 287 people showed up. I wasn't there. I was on the road. But my wife was there. And although this church is not uh, particularly charismatic church. If anything, it's rather the reverse. Nevertheless, the prayers did wax eloquent. Lord, you have promised if two or three are gathered in your name, not only would you be there, but if they be agreed on anything, you would give it. There are 287 of us here today, Lord, and we agree. Poor God doesn't have a chance. (laughs) And then, and then, Think of all the things she's done. And isn't Jesus the great physician? He's the same yesterday and today and forever. If he healed people in the days of his flesh, why should he not do so today? And, and the prayers became more and more and more heated, enthusiastic. And then it was my wife's turn to pray. She said, she who is still coming out of some of the elements of cancer in her own life, she said, Dear Heavenly Father, 
it would be so wonderful if you would heal our dear sister Mary. We know you can do it. And we beg of you to have mercy on her. But if not, teach her to die well. Give her a testimony for her husband and her children that will ring through all eternity. Teach her to die well. Give her visions of glory so that she's anxious to go and not stifled with fear. Teach her to die well. Well, you could have cut the air with a knife. My, my dear wife was letting down the side. It was no longer 287, was down to 286. <laughs> Some of the relatives later, after Mary died at the end of November, early December she died, told us that when my wife prayed that, they were so shocked they started praying that my wife would go first to teach her a little more humility in this regard. That was September. November, her husband phoned me. Don, I gotta talk to you. I gotta talk to you now. Not at my house. You can't come to the house. We'll meet somewhere. So we went to a coffee shop. Do you know what he wanted? He wanted permission to let his wife go. Because the church, which had valiantly taken over, providing the cleaning around the house and doing all the meals and doing any taxi runs. I mean, the, the church really had help. The church was, at a certain level, spectacularly generous and, 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 and helpful in all of this suffering. Yet at the same time, the church was stumblingly wrong. Somebody would go in with a meal and, how are you doing today, Mary? Oh, I feel awful. Don't worry, we're praying for you. The Lord's going to bring real relief here. They were either mistaken or lying through their teeth. Meaning that it was impossible for dear Mary or the family to let her go. They too would have been letting down the side. How can you think realistically about suffering unless you put it in a framework in which there is at least a part of you that says with the Apostle Paul, to depart is far better. Do you see? So, insights from the beginning of the Bible storyline, insights from the end of the Bible storyline. Here there are so many texts that could be adduced. I reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this world order are not to be compared with the glory yet to be revealed. Do you see? That's reasoned out in writer after writer in the New Testament. Number three, insights from the place of innocent suffering. Consider Job. The Bible says that the suffering he faced was not the consequence of any fault on his part. It openly says that it was the result of a wager between God and Satan. God says, have you considered my servant Job? Hmm? And Satan says, yeah, 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 yeah. But you made him a rich, fat cat, you know? He's got all this money. You take away all his money, and you'll discover, he'll turn around and curse you to your face. And God says to Satan, go ahead, take it all away. And after stages of marauders came through, taking away at the hand of the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, the cattle and the, the donkeys and the sheep that were the wealth of the day. And then a storm comes along and takes down a house, a terrible storm, and all ten children die. 
Job still says, Naked came I from my mother's womb. Naked will I return thither. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Hmm? And Satan says, Yeah, 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 but, you know, flesh for flesh, skin for skin. He's healthy still. You know, take away his health and he'll curse you to your face. Go ahead. Spare his life. Do anything else you want. Pretty soon he's picking his scabs on an ash pit. His wife is nagging him. Curse God and die. And the text says, in all this, Job did not sin or speak against God. And then the three miserable friends fly in. They do one wise thing. They shut up for the first week. Before some suffering, silence is golden. And then they start. Job, do you believe that God is sovereign? Yes. Do you believe that God is good? Yes. Do you believe that he's the sovereign, good judge? Yes. So he makes no mistakes in his judgment? No. So why do you think God has judged you? Hmm? Well, Job says uh, to Eliphaz, um, I know that God is sovereign, I know that he's good, but you know, this is a broken world. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. And, and, and you, you know, I, I, I have to say that I, I, I frankly don't deserve this, this, this suffering. Job, you're criticizing God. I mean, if God is sovereign and God is good and, and, and you're suffering, then, then mustn't you draw the necessary inference that, that you're suffering because of evil in your own life? And so gradually the tensions build up as Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite. They, they all get in there in the debate. It gets cranked up cycle by cycle, cycle by cycle, until finally God says, listen, Job says, listen, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. But quite frankly, I call to God and he doesn't answer me. What I really wish I had is a lawyer. Boy, you've gone a long way when you want a lawyer to talk to God. The men are scandalized. Well, Skippy lied you. And then eventually God speaks. And what does he say? Job, have you ever designed a snowflake? Hmm? Were you around when I cast the constellation Orion into the heavens? Hmm, Job? Hmm? Could you make a hippopotamus, Job? Chapter after chapter of rhetorical questions. Finally, Job says, I'm sorry, I spoke at a turn. I get the point. I, there's so, so little I know. I, there's more mystery here. I, I'm, I'm sorry that I was as cocky as I was. And God says, stand up on your feet. I got two more chapters of rhetorical questions. <laughs> it's, it's a stunning story. And at the end, Job says, I repent. Now you must understand what he's repenting of. He's not repenting of any ostensible sin that has brought the suffering on him in the first place. He's repenting only because in his wrestling with these things, he has actually come very close to sounding more holy than God. And in the last chapter... God 
doubles all the wealth that he had, gives him ten more children. He's restored in his reputation and so on. And the critics have a heart attack. Literary critics love the first 41 chapters of Job. This moral ambiguity, and it's not sure who's right, and you don't get a final answer, and God just asks questions, he doesn't give answers. and It's a bit like the, the, the award-winning film, the Academy Award-winning film seven or eight years ago, Crash, which, which begins with um, four pairs. And as the narrative unfolds in the, in the film, um, one of the two pairs is, is, is the good guy. And then as the narrative goes on, it's the other pair that's the uh, other pair in each case is, that's the good guy. And, and the, the good guy now becomes the bad guy and the bad guy. Becomes, well, no wonder it won an Academy Award because it was morally confused. Did, did you see? Much better, they say, than 1950s Westerns where the good guys have the white hats and the bad guys have the black hats and that you, that's how you can tell the difference. But in fact, Job 42 is an important chapter. Because it shows you can't decide anything until the end. In the end, God wins. And not only is justice done, but it is seen to be done. Job 42 is to the book of Job what Revelation 21 and 22 are to the entire Bible. Which is to say that when Christians think about innocent suffering, there is a place for putting our hands to our mouths and saying, we don't know enough. God may have entire layers and levels of things going on that we don't see. God wants our trust more than he wants our intellectual grasp. He wants our intellectual grasp insofar as he has given us answers. But he wants our trust even more. Number four. Insights from the mystery of providence. Insights from the mystery of providence. Now, we could easily spend a couple of hours on this point and barely break the surface. But let let me approach it this way. This is, in a sense, related to the third point, but it develops in it in a certain way. I hold that in the Bible there are two principles that are everywhere taught, and they are mutually compatible. And you have to believe both of them at the same time. Holding both of them at the same time has been called, historically, compatibilism. And you cannot think rightly about the mystery of providence unless you see what those two truths are and accept that they are compatible. Now, the two truths are these. Number one, God is absolutely and utterly sovereign, but his sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. That's the first. God is absolutely and utterly sovereign, but his sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. Number two, human beings are morally responsible creatures. But, well, let's stop for a moment. What do we mean by morally responsible creatures? I mean, they believe and disbelieve. They obey and disobey. They choose, and they are held accountable for all of these responses. They are morally responsible creatures. But, 
Their moral accountability, their moral responsibility, does not make God contingent. It does not make God secondary. It does not dethrone God from his sovereignty. Now, I know that there are huge philosophical other questions related to those two propositions. And if this were another sort of audience on another sort of time, I would be happy to spend a few hours working through them to show that it is reasonable to believe that both of these are mutually compatible. But instead, what I'm going to do is draw your attention to three passages in the Bible to show you how they show up without bothering to provide an explanation. They just show up. For example, the last chapter of Genesis, verses 19 and 20. Here you have the old man, Jacob, dead. And the brothers are afraid that Joseph, now released from parental constraint, might take vengeance upon them. So they come to him and give him a whole sob story and so forth. It's Joseph's response that is so interesting. He says, am I in the place of God? When you sold me into slavery, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, think of what Joseph did not say. He did not say, you intended it for evil, but sadly God wasn't watching that day. He was taking a walk in the woods or something, and and it happened while he was snoozing or not paying attention, so he had to intervene and do all kinds of wonderful things so it had a happy ending after all. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, God's intent was to get me down to Egypt in an air-conditioned, chauffeur-driven limousine. But unfortunately, you guys mucked it up, and as a result, I went down there as a slave instead. He doesn't say that. What he says is, in one and the same event, the brothers had evil intentions, but that didn't make God contingent. God still had good intentions. In one and the same event. Now, how you put all of that together is really tough, but it's what the text says. And there are scores of passages like that in Holy Scripture. One more from the Old Testament, and then we'll come to the most important one of all. This one from Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5 and following, finds God, through the prophet, pronouncing a woe on the regional superpower, Assyria. Assyria was known for its cruelty. It had crushed so many other cities and eventually took away the ten tribes in captivity to the north. Now was attacking Jerusalem. Jerusalem never did fall to the Assyrians. It fell about 140 years later to the Babylonians. But God addresses the Assyrians and he says, Isaiah 10.5, Woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger in whose hand is the club of my wrath. Do you hear that? The Assyrians' warlike actions against the Israelites to the north and crushing them, defeating them, to take place simply because they're God's battle axe. I send him, this is God speaking of the Assyrians, I send him against a godless nation. He means Israel. I dispatch him against the people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. But this is not what he, the Assyrian, intends. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? Has not Calno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamat like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus? I've knocked them all off. I can knock off Jerusalem too. When the Lord has finished all his work, verse 12, against Mount Zion, 
punishing the south by the attacks and so on. And Jerusalem, he will say, I will now punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done this, and by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations, I plundered their treasures. Like a mighty one, I subdued their kings. God says, verse 15, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will send a wasting disease upon a sturdy warrior. Do you hear that? On the one hand, God can say that he's using the Assyrian regional power as a weapon, a battle axe, a, a tool, a, a, a saw, a hammer, a, a, against his own covenant people to bring some measure of chastisement upon them because of their idolatry. And on the other hand, he holds the Assyrians responsible for being such murderous attackers. In other words, God's sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. And the Assyrian responsibility does not make God contingent. One more, the most important one of all. This shows up many times in the New Testament, but probably nowhere more dramatically than in Acts chapter 4. And it concerns, finally, the cross. We read, after the first beating up of the apostles, the first threats at least, the, 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 the actual beatings came a little later, Peter and John go back to their own people, 423, and the people, the church in Jerusalem begins to pray. Sovereign Lord, 424, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Then verses 27 and 28. Listen to these. They're stunning. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. That's verse 27. Verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So on the one hand, Jesus went to the cross because there was a two-bit kangaroo court conspiracy in a tiny nation at the eastern end of the Mediterranean in the first century. Pilate, Herod, leaders of the Jews, they perverted justice. That's why Jesus died. It was a conspiracy. And they're condemned for it. Next verse. They did what God had ordained should happen. Now, if you believe only one of those two verses and not the other one, you utterly destroy Christianity. Supposing you believe only verse 27, but you don't believe verse 28. So now the reason Jesus dies is because of this two-bit political conspiracy. God's got nothing to do with it. But that means Jesus goes to the cross because of a perversion of public justice. But it's got nothing to do with payment of sin or fulfillment of Isaiah 53 or Jesus being the ultimate Passover or the Day of Atonement sacrifice finds no fulfillment in him. All of those Old Testament markers and trajectories that, that we think come to Christ, now God's got nothing to do with it. The reason Jesus dies is not because he's the ultimate Passover lamb. The reason he dies is, is because Pilate was corrupt. And if that's what you believe, Christianity is dead. Because at the heart of Christianity is still we preach Christ crucified. But supposing you believe instead verse 28, don't believe verse 27. Now you believe that the reason why Jesus died is because God, in his massive sovereignty, had arranged everything. He had arranged it so perfectly that 
that Pilate and Herod and all the others, they, they played their roles, but more or less like machines. There, there was no conspiracy, because you don't believe in verse 27 now. There was no moral failure on their part. They, they just did whatever God had arranged mysteriously to happen. But if there's no moral guilt in those who crucified Jesus, there's no moral guilt in anybody. You've got a version of God's sovereignty in which all you've got is raw fatalism. In which case, you don't need a cross because nobody's guilty. In other words, believing those two principles that make up compatibilism, that is, that those two principles I articulated are mutually compatible, stands at the heart of what makes the Christian faith believable, important. So there is a mystery in those two principles. I acknowledge that. But once you've got those two principles in place... A lot of other things make a lot of sense. So that is what enables us in the domain of suffering simultaneously to say as Christians, I don't understand all of this, but God is still in charge and I can trust him. And to say that this is evil and it should not be. Or as a friend has given the title to one of his books, sin is not the way it's supposed to be. Do, do, do you see? It's outrageous. Sin is rebellious. It's, it's, it's anarchic. It's, it's defiance of God. And God is still in charge in, in any case. And if you think that's hard to understand, then, then you've joined the great history of Christian thinkers and theologians and pastors across the century who speak and write of the mystery of providence. But at a certain level on the street, we do understand it, don't we? how when people go through suffering in this fallen, broken world, God sometimes uses that precise suffering to make them far more useful, far more sensitive, far more helpful, far more broken, far more holy. We sing about it. He washed my eyes with tears that I might see. The broken heart I had was good for me. That's in principle acknowledging that the thing that you suffered was bad. But God was turning it into good. Number five. Insights from the centrality of the incarnation and the cross. For at the end of the day, we're not dealing with a God whom we know only in the mysteries of providence. It's the God whom we know because of Christmas and Good Friday and Easter. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. And we have seen his glory. He emptied himself and made himself a nothing, took on the likeness of humanity, and then poured himself out further to the ignominy and shame and brutality of the cross, bearing our guilt in his own body on the tree. We don't worship one who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. We worship one who was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And that means that when you're going through your wildest and most hurtful, most painful, most shameful brokenness, 
and suffering and fear. When you face death, you can't help remember, if you are a Christian, that God sent his own dear son Jesus and walked this way before us. You will sometimes find the greatest comfort not in explanations but at the cross. World War One was that most stupid, vicious of wars. Foolishly begun, foolishly executed, a trench 2,300 kilometers across Europe with Junker 88s on one side and howitzers on the other and machine guns on both sides mowing people down. Ten million of them on each side, just mowing them down for the gain of a few hundred yards here, a few hundred yards there. In Britain, it produced some very remarkable poetry. Wilfred Owen, Rupert, a relatively minor poem, poet by the name of Edward Shillitoff, who was in the trenches. He wrote a book, Jesus of the Scars. And he calls to mind in his poem the fact that Jesus appeared with the wounds of his hands before the twelve after the resurrection, or the eleven, initially ten, then eleven. And he says in one of his stanzas, If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal thy hands, those wounds of thine, we know today what wounds are. Never fear. Show us thy wounds. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. And to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. That changes everything. And finally, insights from the persecuted global church. Insights from taking up our cross and joining in the persecuted global church. For the fact of the matter is that although the New Testament does speak of various kinds of suffering, it does. Yet it focuses most attention on suffering for Jesus' sake. That's remarkable. And, and we have suffered so little by comparison. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29 says, To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. That, that's, that's been granted to you. That, that, that's a gift. Well, the gift of faith, we're very grateful for. Thank you very much. It's been granted to you on behalf of Christ that, 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 uh, that you believe in his name. If you, if you have come to faith, that, that too is a gift from God. It's also been granted to you to suffer. Uh, don't want to go that far. But that's a typical stance. You remember how the apostles in chapter 5, verse 41, once they are finally beaten up, 
they say that they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Now, we live at a time of pretty substantial moral declension and uh, political loss of courage. And um, what Charles Taylor, that great Canadian thinker, calls the age of authenticity, in which we determine our significance, we, we declare our authenticity by being utterly free from all authority. So we become very suspicious of all authority, parental authority, state authority, governmental authority. Um, rather, our authenticity is bound up in our absolute freedom without much thought given to uh, social cohesion or moral accountability or the like. It's the age of authenticity. Now, in this age of authenticity, um, there are more and more people who view the church as bigoted, right-wing, ignorant, narrow-minded, intolerant, and so on. And so it's not going to be too surprising if troubles do come. People could lose uh, the, 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 the facilities they're renting, for example, just because uh, they, they don't toe the line on some public declaration of morality. And indeed, there could ultimately be exclusion from certain professions or, or certain uh, tasks. Or It's not impossible that Christians increasingly will face actual prosecution for hate and so on. In, in the United States, I'm on a particular board and on the same board uh, of a charity that gives away millions every year uh, to, to various causes, mostly in the two-thirds world, um, there is the, the leader of, um, of, of a large city mission. He's a Trinity graduate, and this mission, um, though it's f thoroughly evangelistic, is providing homes for the poor. It has um, rehab programs for alcoholics. It has prison release programs for helping people integrate back into life. They'll take anybody. Uh, and it's a vast thing with millions of dollars a year spent and hundreds of people being helped every year and so on. Just before Christmas, they were interviewed by a local rag. And ultimately, um, the, the, uh, the, 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 the people wanted to say, do you, do you look after the homeless? Uh, yes, yes. So if a, a, a married couple uh, lost their house, both lost their job and lost their house, and you'd put them up? Oh, yes, absolutely. You'd provide a home for them? Yes, that's what we do. We have scores and scores of couples like that. Supposing it were two men who were married, would you take them in? Oh, yes, absolutely. We'd, we'd, we'd take them in and provide their needs and give them food. Would you set them up in a home so they could live as husband and husband together? Well, no, we, we couldn't do that because, because we, we really do think that God himself says something different on that front. We provide them and give them all the training that they need and all the help, but, but our consciences are bound by Scripture in this regard. We, 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 couldn't, we couldn't do that. So this was written up in the national press as hate group taking lots of money from the government to run programs. They should be shut down. Within two months, they had lost 600000 of public support. Where that one's going to come out, I, I don't know. Do you know any other group in that city that's doing as much to help the poor and the broken and the jailed and the drug-obsessed and all the rest? I don't know any other group in that city, and I know that city pretty well. But they're the hate-filled ones. And you know what? As developments of this take place in the next 20 or 30 years, 
toward your second century. Wear it with gratitude to God. It has been granted to you in behalf of Christ, not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Supposing every time Christians were laughed at or mocked or ridiculed or faced something a little more than that, if every time that happened, they quietly said to themselves, yes, what a privilege it is to suffer for the name. Wouldn't that change all the dynamic? No self-pity? New courage? Alignment with Jesus and the prophets? Did you see? And that's just basic Christianity. That's what's expected. It's how the apostles lived. Instead of becoming scared and inward and frightened of our own shadow and bemoaning the the times and it's the last days and so on, then we say we rejoice because we're counted worthy to suffer in the name. My job takes me all around the world. The only continent I haven't been on in the last two years is Antarctica, because I don't preach to penguins. <laughs> I've been on most of them more than once. And I could introduce you to brothers and sisters in Christ in many, many, many corners of the world where they face spectacular opposition. And none of it is easy. Never, never imagine that suffering for Jesus is easy. But when I write to Trinity graduates today, for example, in countries that probably should remain nameless, I'm sure somebody's recording this, where there is overt persecution, where people sometimes get beheaded, do you know what they tell me when they write back? I write and say, how's it going, dear brother? How are you coping under all of this? And they write back and say, we have never seen so much fruit for Jesus' sake. We have never seen so many converts. This is wonderful. The Lord is purifying the church and bringing in great fruit. Well, they're just acting apostolically. That's what Acts 5.41 says. They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Let me conclude. Let me remind you that what I have been doing is not providing a simple proof text approach to questions of suffering. A couple of quick verses to answer all the questions and keep the devil away. This is an exercise in what is called worldview formation. And it can be thoughtfully assessed only by comparing the total vision with other competing worldviews. I wish I had time to unpack that. Second, I need to admit, quite frankly, that what I have been engaged in is in many respects an exercise in thought, in theology. It's how to think about things as a kind of prophylactic medicine, a medicine you take in advance before the evil days come. You get these things well and truly ingrained into the way you think, and you'll be in a better position when the evil days come, as come they do. But I would be the first to insist that when the evil days come, you don't start teaching this stuff. When a tsunami hits, or when Katrina arrives, when war breaks out, then you need water. Helicopters, food, blankets. You need to send in the Marines to have a little bit of stability and stop the looters. You need vast supplies of medicine and drugs. You need counsel. You need policing. 
So not for a moment do I want to suggest that Christians, when they face public suffering, should merely think about things. But nevertheless, because we are Christians, we want to think about them in the light of God's word so that while we're sending in money or bringing in drugs or sending missionaries to fight Ebola, we nevertheless have a frame of reference to think about it, to pray about these things, to acknowledge the goodness of God even in the midst of heartache so that when we cannot understand all the details, we still gladly return to the cross and then say with Job, bringing the testaments together, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let us pray. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we look to the future, as this church begins its second century, if Christ does not come back first, we pray that there will be biblical fidelity. Christian maturity, a willingness to serve and to witness, to study and teach Holy Scripture, to walk with God, to bring up a new generation who love God with heart and soul and mind and strengthen their neighbors as themselves, who do not take their cues from the passing fancies of worldviews that keep shifting, but are determined increasingly, powerfully, by Holy Scripture so that while this weekend becomes a time to look back, grant that it may also be a time to look ahead, and even more to look at you, our Maker and Redeemer, and your dear Son, whom you have sent not only to be our judge but our Savior. We ask in Christ's name.